0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Product Marketing Life podcast, which is brought to you by Product Marketing Alliance. My name's Bryony Pearce, and I'm the content manager here at PMA. In this episode, I'm joined by Phil Agnew, who's the director of product marketing at Brandwatch. We saw Phil take to the stage at Product Marketing World's London Summit last year, and he spoke a lot about consumer psychology, which was really, really interesting. So, we thought we'd pick his brains a bit more one on one in this podcast. To kick things off, Phil, could I get you to just give everyone a bit of an introduction into you, your role, and then Brandwatch itself?
1: Sure. So uh, my role at Brandwatch is Director of Product Marketing. Um, In that role, I'm charged with doing two things, basically. Bringing our fantastic software products to market, making sure our customers, our prospects, And all of the people internally at Brandwatch understand what the product is and the benefits of those products. Um, And then the second part of my role is bringing the market back to the product. So Mm -hmm. doing things like helping our company understand our consumers, um, helping our company understand our competitors as well, and making sure that the products we create meet a need for those consumers and and resonate in the market. Um, So that's my role. And then Brandwatch is the world's leading consumer intelligence platform. We help thousands of the world's largest brands better understand their consumers by analyzing what their consumers say online. So Mm -hmm. if a consumer is talking about a car brand on Reddit or chatting on a news article comment thread um, about their favorite marketing campaign or whatever it might be, we can collect all of that data for a brand, Mm -hmm. uh, enrich that data, provide some extra analysis to it And help answer really difficult questions like what products do my consumers want me to build next, or what campaign would resonate Mm -hmm. in this new market, stuff like that.
0: Yeah, it sounds like a really kind of interesting industry to be in. Um, I guess day to day you get a lot of, I do because it's so varied with different clients and their background. Um, I guess every day, every day is just very different and interesting that element
1: absolutely i've always said it's the best place in the world to do marketing because whatever you're interested in whether it's taylor swift football or b2b brands you can just log into the platform and start analyzing them we've got all sorts of data in there so you can do any type of marketing
0: Mm -hmm. and how long have you been at Brandwatch for
1: five years five years okay
0: cool and then what does your team look like in terms of kind of numbers and roles and that kind of thing
1: Mm, we're expanding the team at the moment, um, so if you are looking for a product marketing role, head over to the Brandwatch Careers page and you'll see, I think one or two on there. Mm-hmm. Um, but the team is about—it's got three people in size at the moment, and we're expanding um, the team. Um, mm-hmm. And then we try and make sure that we we link up directly to product managers. So the, yeah. the golden ratio that I think we look for is one product marketer to maybe two or ma- maximum three uh, products. M- product managers and that Mm -hmm. just gives us the ability to collaborate properly with with that part of the organisation and and get ahead of launches and feedback into the business and make sure we're building the right products.
0: Yeah for sure and uh, nice plug there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I know you've given a number of talks around consumer psychology um, and have your own podcast dedicated to it. It's clearly a huge passion of yours so how is it that you first sort of got into that area?
1: So actually, the way I got into it was, was through Brandwatch. So we had we had a number of cl- uh, of customers and users who are in the consumer psychology space um, and worked at really large agencies like Ogilvy or Canta, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. um, and they were using Brandwatch to better understand consumers. And one of those one of those users was was uh, a man called Richard Shotton, mm-hmm. um, who joined us on a marketing call to just explain how he used Brandwatch to better understand consumers. Mm-hmm. Um, and Richard sort of became a bit of a friend of Brandwatch. And we followed followed up with him over time. We did a few webinars with him.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And he went on to write a, a really brilliant book about consumer psychology, which is a great entry level book for any marketer out there mm-hmm. um, called The Choice Factory. And the choice factory just details some of the key studies and key pieces of research that have been done around our consumers and makes them applicable for a modern day marketer Mm -hmm. we read this book in the marketing team at brand watch and overnight changed a bunch of the tactics and activities we were Mm -hmm. working on Um, we introduced new new goals we introduced new principles we introduced new campaigns and saw some dramatic improvements by introducing some of these some of these Mm -hmm. laws i guess from the world of consumer psychology um, and ever since then, I've just been fascinating with the, fascinated by the field. Um, mm-hmm. I truly believe it's probably one of the, the smartest ways you can improve your marketing and, and your product marketing. Yep. And it basically allows you to base your decision, decisions on science rather than gut decisions and gut instinct. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's meant we've been far more efficient with our marketing.
0: Yeah. So I take it. It sounds like it's the whole company or your team as invested in this consumer psychology aspect as you
1: uh yeah i would i would it's probably led by me <laughs> like it's, i wouldn't say it's something the whole team is is as fascinated in it as, mm-hmm. as i am but it's it's it links really nicely with what the company is doing the company is provides a product which helps hundreds of clients or thousands of clients understand their consumer mm-hmm. um, and consumer psychology is all is all about looking at the science behind how consumer brains work so mm-hmm. it, it, it was a smart sort of subject to learn more about
0: yeah, sure. And then you mentioned um, that kind of book that you first read. What are your other go-to sources when you're reading up on consumer psychology?
1: Mm, so the, the probably the grand, the grandfather, the godfather, <laughs> the legend behind consumer psychology is Robert Cialdini, And he wrote the book Influence, um, which is probably a few decades old now. Um, but Influence is just a fascinating book. And it was really one of the first books that truly uh, was targeted at marketers and salespeople and helped them understand. Mm -hmm. the world of consumer psychology and there are some brilliant insights in that in there about how the power of scarcity influences consumers about how social proof influences consumers a bunch of other studies as well it really helped i think marketers better understand consumers so i'd massively recommend reading influence Mm -hmm. and the choice factory is a, a, a sort of modern day adaptation of that a lot of the work that that Steve Martin has put together. So he's another brilliant consumer psychology author. He's written work, book, books like Yes and yeah. more recently Messengers. Um, both of those are brilliant at understanding how consumers brains operates. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's also some more, I guess you would say, sciencey versions, which are less targeted at marketers, but still really interesting stuff like um, predictably irrational by Dan Ariely. Um, and then some very specific things as well. So if you're in website design, there's a brilliant book by Natalina High called uh, The Webs of Psychology. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, The Webs of Influence. Um, and that's a brilliant book which helps you understand how the principles of consumer psychology can be applied to web design. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a bunch of different different books, but the, the one I would truly recommend if people really want to get an understanding is is Influence.
0: OK, perfect. Thank you very much for that. And then moving on to your presentation in London I was there and I thoroughly enjoyed it and I've actually been putting a lot of what you said into practice um, since then. So for people who weren't there please can you give us a bit of an overview of what you spoke about and then sort of delve into those distinctiveness anchoring and scarcity elements.
1: Yeah so the the, the way I started the talk was really by challenging I think a lot of the assumptions in, in marketing and I think We we often assume that we understand our consumers as marketers, after all, it is our job. Then you see these stats, like from eMarketer, for example, that claim that 25% of marketing budget is wasted, gets no ROI. There's another brilliant stat from HBR. They did analysis of new product launches, and they found that on average, 80% of new consumer product launches fail. And if 25% of our budget is being wasted and 80% of new product launches fail, there's there's clearly something is broken, something's not right. And there's hundreds of different reasons behind why that could be the case. But I thought that one common theme seems to be that most of our marketing decisions are based on gut instinct, they're based on how we feel, what we might think to be right, rather than laws and science and data. And Forbes have actually studied this. So Forbes found that 50% or, sorry, over 50% of our decisions are based on gut instinct. They're not based on data. And that's specifically for marketers. So, yeah. deciding what audience to target, or what campaign to go ahead with, or what tagline to write, is just based on what what we think and how we feel, rather than on science or data. And and in the talk, I sort of started to introduce that it doesn't have to be that way. We can base our decisions on data, on science, on laws, if we look to the world of consumer psychology, because we've spent hundreds of years understanding how consumers' brains operate. And if we take some of that understanding and apply it to product marketing, we can really start to improve our marketing. So I'll give some examples of of social proof, for example. So Richard Shotton, who I mentioned earlier, in his book, he went into a pub in London and he asked uh, the barman what the best-selling beer was at that pub. And the barman pointed out that it was one of the ales. And he said to the barman, do you mind if I put a sign on top of this beer which says that it's best selling? And in doing that, he wanted to then measure if it changed the amount the beer was bought. Now, the idea here being that social proof is the idea that we follow the actions of others. So if we're walking down the street and we see a bunch of pedestrians looking into a window, we will look into that window as well. We will follow the actions of others. So would it apply to products as well if we put best selling? on a, on a beer, will it, will it make it sell more? And perhaps unsurprisingly it does to a, to a really large, uh, uh, extent. So that, that pub it saw sales increase by 2.5 times for that beer. In the following week, after just putting a best-selling sign on it, what's interesting about that is it's not just that beer that increased sales and all the other beers dropped in sales. Overall sales increased as well. So just influ- showcasing that more people bought one beer actually encouraged more people to buy beer in general. Mm-hmm. That's social proof. There's another brilliant study around the endowment effect, which is highly important to marketers. So uh, Natalie Nahai, in her book, which I referenced earlier, talks about this at length and. Uh, there's this fascinating study where two groups of participants are given loyalty cards now one loyalty card has seven stamps to collect and the other has nine stamps to collect in that nine stamp variant two of the stamps have already been plugged in so essentially the loyalty cards are the same because they both still need seven stamps to collect they both still need to buy seven coffees to get a free coffee except in one of them two of the stamps have been plugged in so so the this sort of action has already begun. Now uh, The endowment effect is the idea that if a project has begun, we are more likely to complete it. So they did this test with loyalty cards to see if people were more likely to complete this the loyalty card that had been stamped in two times. And maybe unsurprisingly, maybe surprisingly. But in the in the in the study, they found that people were 82 percent more likely to complete uh, the loyalty card that already had two stamps on it and this can then be applied really really easily to product marketing so if you are marketing an online app you should showcase some sort of endowment in that app you know if you're trying to get people to sign up say to them that you've only got 50 percent left to go or you've you've just done two days and now you've only got 10 days left headspace are really good at doing this if you ever sign up to their free trial app or if you're an e-commerce brand and you're getting people to check out you should always give a progress bar saying only you know Fifty percent left to go until you can check out—that sort of thing—it massively improves completion mm-hmm. rate. So that's a couple of a couple of ideas around how consumer psychology, just applying some small and simple effects, can can massively improve mm-hmm. um, your marketing. Um, and then I guess we went into those three distinctive principles um, or three principles of distinctiveness, anchoring, and scarcity. Um, and would would you like me to sort of talk through them as well, Bryony?
0: Yeah, no, that'd be super useful if you just give an overview, kind of what you gave us um, in the event. That would be great.
1: Brilliant. So so distinctiveness is it's pretty obvious, right? It's mm-hmm. this idea that things that stand out are more likely to be remembered. And it was actually discovered almost 100 years ago by a um, female uh, consumer psychologist with a very distinctive name, Hedwig von Restorov. Mm-hmm. And she gave participants these long lists of uh, letters, so letters like VDH, WXY, uh, ASD, g h j you know long list of letters like this but interspersed with those list of letters she put a a number a few numbers so four five six and she would try and measure how or what people remembered and unsurprisingly the numbers were 30 times more likely to be remembered the reason being is because they were distinct um, and the same has been sound uh, the same has been found by brands as well so if you show people a number of different brands let's say couple of dozen brands from the automotive industry and put one brand in there that's from the fast food industry people are far more likely to remember that fast food brand because it's distinctive because it stands out again this might not be a surprise to anyone but what surprises me is that most brands really fail at doing this so if you look at football sponsorship the majority of people who sponsor football or soccer in the u.s are beverages brand, brands you know heineken Carling, carlsberg budweiser all of them sponsor major major football competitions if you look at again let's stay on the subject of football uh, or soccer if you look at the um, companies that sponsor the actual shirts in the premier league nine out of 20 of the premier league shirt sponsors are gambling firms so you, there's no distinctness there you know it's all the same category if you go on to sas products so a lot of the people listening to this but maybe work for a SaaS company if you look at the um, websites of zendesk asana airtable buffer If you go and look at those uh, websites right now, you'll see they all have really similar cartoons and a really similar web design on their homepage as well. So there's a lot of sort of following competitors here. And best example of this is, again, one that was actually shared by Richard Shotton on my podcast, which was uh, watch ads. And he found that watch ads not only look identical, so they've all got influences like Daniel Craig or Leonardo DiCaprio. They all look identical. They're all holding the watch, they're all wearing a watch. But the the fascinating thing about these watch ads is in the ads, the watch is always set to the exact same time. Whether you're looking at Omega, whether you're looking at Dior, whoever it might be, they always set the watch to eight minutes past 10. So there's a huge amount of copying going on, a complete lack of distinctiveness. Mm -hmm. What's fascinating is when you are distinct with your product marketing, when you are distinct with your marketing in general, You can generate real performance so a great example it's a bit of a niche one but the australian tax collectors the public service behind collecting tax uh they sent out letters to people who hadn't paid their tax on time desperately encouraging them to pay their tax because if they didn't they would get a huge late fee um and the australian tax collector didn't didn't actually want that they wanted people to pay their tax on on time so slightly tweaked the letter they sent out to people and the only tweak they made was put a big stamp on the letter saying urgent in red letters and that made it slightly more distinctive it encouraged more people to open it and as a result four million dollars was saved in late fees for residents so residents actually paid their tax on time and saved themselves four million dollars copenhagen another example they wanted to reduce the amount of litter on their on their streets so they painted their bins neon green and they painted on the floor these sort of neon green footprints on the way to the bins and that resulted in 45 percent more rubbish ending up in bins rather than on the street Mm -hmm. two sort of public examples and then you've got an example of of really a company marketing their product as well which is um compare the market.com so a uk brand that does sort of comparisons for utilities companies of feet for utilities um i know about 10 years ago we're in a Really, really difficult market because everybody in that market was using the exact same language to market their product. This probably resonate with a lot of people listening in. Um, they were all talking about benefits. They were all talking about features. They were all talking about competitive differentiators. And there was no distinctiveness between compare the market or go compare or confuse.com. It's really difficult for them to stand out. So they tried a completely different strategy and they introduced... A brand new ad, which didn't speak about features, didn't speak about benefits, didn't speak about competitive differentiators. Instead, it told the story of a meerkat who ran the website comparethemeerkat.com mm-hmm. and how annoyed that meerkat was because Compare the Market was stealing all its SEA. Mm-hmm. Now, this didn't, as I said, showcase the product in any special way, but it did make them stand out. It did make them distinct. Mm-hmm. And that ad generated an 83 percent increase in awareness. It propelled them to leaders in the market within just a couple of months. And it actually allowed them to achieve their twelve month objectives, so their yearly objectives within just nine weeks. So oh, wow. actually using that distinctiveness, actually highlighting that distinctiveness mm-hmm. had a really, really big effect.
0: Yeah. It's uh, it's interesting as well. The um I'll have to include them as attachments when we upload the podcast, but for the watch ads and Asana and Airtable, when I saw them on the screen um in London it was uncanny how similar they all were it was got a few chuckles from the audience i remember
1: (laughs) yeah yeah and it's not it's not it's completely understandable why it happens because Mm -hmm. our bosses and our leadership teams and our board will often look at competitors and they'll probably know those competitors senior management as well and admire some of the work they do and they'll know that they're performing and growing And it's really not uncommon to look at our competitors and think oh they're successful we should copy what they're doing if we copy what we're doing we'll have some of that success mm-hmm. but the science says the complete opposite actually what the science suggests is copying competitors is far more risky than actually being distinct because if we copy mm-hmm. competitors we don't stand out we don't get product recall mm-hmm. we're not remembered and actually trying to stand out is a far less riskier strategy even though sort of internally in business is viewed as the opposite
0: mm-hmm. And then, do you think it's kind of lack of awareness into the science element of it that's causing people to just keep following the trend? Or, like, what do you think the cause is?
1: Yes, again, it's really good. I think it's, I think a lot of us work in workplaces where, you know, we are encouraged to take risks and we are encouraged to have autonomy. But fundamentally, we still have numbers to hit. And mm-hmm. if we don't understand the science, behind let's say distinctiveness in this example but there's more examples we can get into mm-hmm. if we don't if we don't have a good understanding of that science it's really hard for us to suggest something completely different like a compare the meerkat campaign for example yes. or you know not putting cartoons on our SAS website yeah. whatever it might be because we can't actually articulate to our bosses why that strategy would be more successful whereas if you go to your boss and say oh I really want to do cartoons on my website because you know I've seen that Buffer do it and it looks really nice and Buffer are really successful so it must must be successful for us that's quite an easy story to tell and it would get a whole lot of people's heads nodding so I guess one of the reasons is that we haven't really educated ourselves in in what makes something more likely to be remembered and as a result of that we're unable to articulate across the business as to why a distinctive strategy might be more beneficial Mm
0: -hmm. and then do you feel sometimes like i know you referred to the instance where you get the kind of loyalty card stamps because you're so into this consumer psychology side of things do you in a way kind of feel immune to it
1: (laughs) it's a good question um i don't i don't think so so the way our brains work is is actually quite interesting and it means that it's really difficult to get immune to these these things so daniel Kahneman introduced the now famous model of how our brain works which is system one and system two Mm -hmm. now system one is that automatic fast immediate um, way that your brain works and system two is the more considered way your brain works so if you think about driving to work you barely ever think about driving to work you know it's automatic it's easy it's just operated by that system one part of the brain you turn corners with ease and you almost do it blind. And I don't know if any of you have started driving towards your work on a weekend and found yourself taking turns and exits that would take you to work rather than to the location you need to go to. And that's because your system one just takes over, Um whereas your system two sort of needs to be engaged to start working. So that's the more analytical part of your brain. Mm-hmm. But A lot of these consumer psychology nudges really work because they affect the system one part of the brain, you know, the initial fast part of the brain that makes decisions. So. An example, for example, an example, is um, the anchoring effect, and the anchoring effect is this idea that we can our views dramatically change based on the initial piece of information that we see. So for example, if you show a general population sample of British people, a headline which states "Climate change bill to cost hundred million pounds, climate change bill to cost hundred million pounds. That's a headline from a newspaper. If you showed them that headline. If you put the Financial Times logo above that headline, the majority of people will think, oh, that's a good, that's a good uh, idea. Climate change bill. Yeah, yeah, this is a good idea. That's good value for money. Um, that's exactly what that should cost. It's a positive thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you show that sort of identical sample of people, general population sample of, of British people, the exact same headlines, the climate change bill to cost 100 million pounds, but change the publisher, Change, change the logo of the publisher from financial times to a tabloid publisher like the sun the same people suddenly have a completely different view of the exact same headline so they'll start to say it's negative that it costs too much that it's not a good idea mm-hmm. and if we really thought about that there should be no difference because it's the exact same headline and if we analysed it, we would know that it's, it shouldn't be, one shouldn't be positive and one shouldn't be negative. That's not how our brains work. We, we make a lot of our decisions using that system one part of the brain. So the long-winded answer to your question is that it's difficult to ever feel like you're immune to, that, to, immune to it because still the majority of the decisions we make are made by that system one part of the brain, which is so fast in it's thinking that you barely have time to sort of realise that you might have been nudged in a certain direction
0: yes yeah, so it's not a conscious thing i guess it's not something you can control
1: yeah yeah and there's, a, there's another brilliant sort of example of this it's around eating eating food or changing the 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 layout of a cafeteria mm-hmm. i think google did this by reading a bit up on consumer psychology and they wanted their staff to eat a bit healthier And so they did really small little nudges like they gave slightly smaller plates they put the broccoli and veg at the start of the queue. they put the ice cream behind an opaque glass rather than a sea free glass. They put the cookies on a slightly higher shelf. you know all these yeah. tiny little things just made it a little bit different, more difficult to get to the less yeah. healthy things. and those tiny changes dramatically changed the plates that people were, were eating. Okay. Um, and I think that really shows that we are led by our automatic system-wide approach you know people think that they choose exactly what they want for dinner but actually their choices vary dramatically just on where items are placed on the buffet so i think that's a good example of how of how we are influenced by these small nudges
0: yeah that's really interesting as you say that i'm thinking maybe i should start strobing the the chocolate on the top shelf at home and see if it works for me (laughs) i could do something
1: honestly it's a good idea another example is like people often talk about being sort of a bit addicted to twitter or instagram on their Mm -hmm. phone and one really simple way of sort of getting around that is just moving the location of instagram and twitter on your on Mm -hmm. your um on your ipad or your iphone whatever it might be and just doing that because when you go to click on it you end up clicking on something else that just snaps you out of it and makes you think oh no i don't want to be clicking here i don't want to be looking here and stops you actually from opening those apps so yeah. yeah, simple, simple tricks like that actually can have a big effect.
0: Okay, awesome. And then you kind of touched on it in your answer to one of my previous questions, the whole anchoring element. Could you just delve into that one in a little bit more detail, please?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anchoring, as I said, is the idea that we change, we can change our decisions mm-hmm. or change our behavior, sorry, based on the initial piece of information we see. Um, so there's a really fascinating study by Dan Ariely, who I mentioned earlier in his book, Predictably Irrational and he wanted to see if you could change the amount people bid on an item mm-hmm. based on just a random number that they saw a bit of a weird one so what he did in his he was he was a, he was a university lecturer at the time and he split his class into two groups on one side on one group he, he asked everybody to or sorry in the whole audience he asked everybody to get out their social security cards so in the us you have a social security card it's got a i think it's a 10 digit number on it um and that number is completely random. And he asked people to split themselves in half by their num- the last number on their social security card. So if you had a number of zero to five, you had to sit on the left hand side of the room. And if you had a number of five to nine, so sorry, zero to four and then five to nine, so a higher number, put yourself on the right hand side of the room. So people were split at random because the social security number is random. But he then asked these students to actually look at that number, so whether it was zero to four or five to nine and really remember the number that they had. So some were looking at a higher number, some were looking at a lower number. Then he asked the students to bid on a number of different items. So, a Prosecco, a keyboard, mouse, a book, random things. Now, there should really be no statistical difference or statistically significant difference in the way these people bid because mm-hmm. the only difference in, in, or well, they've, they've been, they've been grouped randomly and the only difference is their social security number, which we know is given to them at random. But it doesn't work that way because of the anchoring effect mm-hmm. those that saw a number of five to nine so a high number and were asked to remember that high number on average bid i think three times more for the exact same items um than the people who were who were forced to look at the lower number first mm-hmm. so i think the average bid for a keyboard was $16 for the low group Mm -hmm. and actually $55 for the high group which Mm -hmm. is an incredible difference when you think that the only thing that differentiates them is the fact that they were thinking of a high number rather than the low number Mm -hmm. Um, and there's some more interesting examples of anchoring used sort of in sales as well so this is an example in Britain done by uh, Stephen Martin and Joseph Marks in their books messengers and they went into a real estate agents and just tried to improve the efficiency of sales in the real estate agents and they took this principle of anchoring to heart and tried to see if they could change the initial piece of information that somebody gets when they call up a real estate agent if they could change that if they could make it slightly better would it affect sales mm-hmm. so what they did is they asked the receptionist when he or she picked up the phone, instead of just saying, Oh, I'll pass you over to Peter, who was the real estate agent, or I'll pass mm-hmm. you over to Jane, who was the real estate agent. They were asked to say just a couple of lines to just add a bit more information about that, that real estate agent. So for example, they were asked to say, I'll pass you over to Peter. He has over 20 years of experience and would be perfect for you. Mm-hmm. They're not lying there. He has 20 years of experience and he probably is the perfect person <laughs> within that, within that organization. And they pass him over just with that little bit. More information, a little bit of an anchor. And by just changing that, by only making that small tweak, they actually increased the amount of inquiries that were converted to valuations by 20%, -hmm. and ultimately increased sales by 20% as well. So just by adding that tiny little anchor right at the start. Mm -hmm. It generated a massive, massive change in the behaviour of of people actually going on to do things like buy houses, you know, huge, huge decisions. There was a noticeable difference in their behaviour when they had a a positive anchor at the start of their discussion.
0: It's incredible just to hear those numbers as well, because for all the examples you've given so far, it's not just a 1% here or 2% there. They're really kind of game changing numbers, aren't they?
1: Yeah, yeah. And that's and I think you need that really, because otherwise it, it, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be worth copying and trying. Yeah. I would definitely, I would definitely argue though that it's worth trying for your, for your business, for your organization. Some of these nudges might work really well, mm-hmm. whilst others might not be too effective. So they're always worth trialling and seeing if they work in your industry and for your market.
0: Mm-hmm. And then, Fran, just before I move on to some questions that were asked at the event, can I just get you to give an overview of this scarcity element as well?
1: Yeah. So this is the final principle that I talked through at the summit in London. And here, the scarcity principle is really just the idea that we're more likely to uh, want scarce resources. So if you think about the the bell that, get, that gets rung in the pub for last orders, it, that that's showcasing that there's a bit of scarcity, that time's running out to buy a beer, and that will encourage an increase of purchases. Or if you think about Glastonbury tickets, um, people who rush to their computers, log in on multiple different devices, and the reason we do that is because we know they're a scarce resource. Um, but it was really Discovered, or well, sorry, the power of scarcity, I think was truly discovered back in 2000 in a fascinating study, which was about, which, sorry, which was um, a study around selling jam, funnily enough. So in the study, the researchers placed um, jam booths, so booths that were selling jam within supermarkets on uh, a number of different weekends across the country in the US. And there was only one variation to this booth. So they had two different types of booth with only one thing that was different in each booth. In one booth, there was a large variety of different jams. So Mm -hmm. 24 different jams for consumers to choose from. And in the other booth, there were just six jams for consumers to choose from. Mm -hmm. And they were testing out which of these booths would generate more sales. Now conventional product marketing wisdom would say that the booth with the 24 varieties would generate more sales. Mm -hmm. will generate more sales because consumers can look at all the different types of jam and they can find the jam they really like and if they see a chili jam I really like chili jam I see a raspberry jam I really like raspberry jam whatever it might be Mm -hmm. they can find the jam that they like in that large that large um, number of varieties Mm -hmm. and that should generate more sales than the, the six variety version but consumers don't think that way actually they are far more likely to buy in the six variety version because of the scarcity effect. So that six variety version in this study, 30 percent of consumers went on to buy, mm-hmm. whereas just three percent of consumers went on to buy in the 24 variety mm-hmm. edition. And I think what that shows is that when a resource is scarce, even if it's not claimed to be scarce, so even if it's just a lower number of products available, scarcity is perceived and people are more likely to buy. But same is true for for in, in other studies as well. So there's a fascinating study with uh, with cookies. So if you give somebody a jar of cookies and the jar is full, and ask them how much would you be willing to pay for a cookie, um, they'll give you a price. But if you then show, you know, the same people, the same cookies in a jar, but the jar is empty. There's just a couple of cookies left. People are far more likely to pay more for the cookies that are are in scarce resource that are in the jar that's almost empty, even though the cookies are the same. Mm -hmm. Um, Same has been found with movie posters. So if you show people movie posters and say, how likely are you to go see this film Mm -hmm. that on average you'll get, you know let's say 10 percent of people saying that they're going to attend but if you then say oh this film is ending this weekend you had a bit of scarcity Mm -hmm. it makes people 36 percent more likely to attend same people same movies Mm -hmm. just a bit of scarcity dramatically changes um or influences behavior and i think my favorite study about scarcity and the one that i think it's just so interesting because it stands out and and i think just reveals sort of how how much people are nudged by marketing mm-hmm. messages is one that's done with cans of soup in a supermarket so what the uh, researchers did is they put big marketing messages up in the supermarket saying buy soup come and buy some soup we've got an offer on soup mm-hmm. and marketing the marketing message worked people went and bought soup on average they bought three cans of soup mm-hmm. just with this marketing campaign Brilliant, right? It's like, oh brilliant. Marketing works. We can all put ourselves on the back and know that we're doing a good job. But then they trialed adding a bit of scarcity to that message. So all they did is they put an asterisk, a little asterisk on their marketing message. Mm -hmm. And under the asterisk, they said, sales are limited at 12 cans per person, 12 Mm -hmm. cans of soup per person. You can't buy more than 12 cans. Now, this should have had no effect on behavior whatsoever, because nobody was buying 12 (laughs) cans of soup in the original control group. Should have had no effect. But people are influenced. People say, oh, I'm limited at buying 12 cans. And that scarcity... That, that small limitation that you put on them dramatically changes behavior. And instead of buying three cans of soup on average, when they see that slightly tweaked message, they actually buy four and a half cans of soup. So people are far more likely to buy more cans of soup just when there's a bit of scarcity in the messaging as well.
0: Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much for that overview. That's the second time I've heard it in the space of a few weeks, and it is still really, really fascinating and interesting. So thank you so much for telling us all about that again. Um, and obviously in London, there's a lot of questions asked after your presentation, and for time reasons, we weren't able to get through them all. So could I just run through the questions by you that people from the audience asked, but that you didn't get a chance to answer on the day?
1: Sure, of course.
0: Okay, so the first one was, how do you apply neuro marketing tactics to B two B SaaS products?
1: Yes, I I really like this question because um, it's it's a bit more specific, and I think there's a bit of lateral thinking you have to do for it. But fundamentally, B two B SaaS products, you are still selling to a consumer, and that consumer might be a marketer within a brand, or an analyst within a brand, or I don't know, financial. Um, manager within a brand, but they are still consumers and they'll still be affected by the exact same um, nudges as mm-hmm. sort of consumers that would be targeted by a B2C brand. Um, I guess slight tweaks are, because it's a SaaS product, is that the the marketing messages are all online. They're all sent out via websites, so you've got to think a lot more about web design. Mm-hmm. Um, and stuff like that Um, but they work in the same way so Natalie Nahai who I referenced earlier she's shared a number of really interesting examples of how you can nudge people online by slightly changing the content of your website so for example if you remove um, it's a really interesting study around um, typography and how clear a website is because that dramatically influences people if you have a really clustered uh, website with a bunch of difficult to read words people mm-hmm. are more, less likely to convert obviously but actually what they found was if you make the pricing really difficult to read so the rest, rest of the website is very easy to read but you put the pricing in a difficult to read font sales actually increase because people are less <laughs> likely to read that price um i don't recommend that but that is an interesting <laughs> Sounds study, <sketchy>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, the, the, the principles apply in the same way. You're still targeting a consumer, even if they are at a brand, um, and they're definitely worth trying out.
0: OK, perfect. Thank you. And then the next one, does exclusivity equate to a feeling of scarcity and drive the same results?
1: Yeah, this is a really important one because I use scarcity in a really broad term and it's sort of I'm covering two things. I'm covering that example of the resources about to run out which is sort of the typical example of scarcity. So that's that example of Glastonbury, for example. The, exhaust, the resource of Glastonbury tickets is about to run out if I don't go and buy them now, and that generates a change in behaviour. But I think the study I cited from 2000 actually showed a different type of scarcity. So there's none of the researchers were telling participants or telling consumers that this, the jam is about to run out. It's still there. It's not going anywhere. There's just a fewer number of, of jams available. And that created scarcity in a different way. So just by limiting the amount, um, the number of products available, it still generated a change in behavior and still, um, still generated that feeling of scarcity as well. So it works in two ways. As an interesting example, just to refer back to that cookie study, mm-hmm. the researcher then did a third version. So he, the first version, full can of cookies, second version, um, tin of cookies, but with only a couple of cookies left. And the third version, he showed the the tin of cookies but with only a few cookies left in it and then said these there were only two cookies left because they've been really popular today Mm -hmm. in that third example people were likely to pay even more Mm -hmm. so when you combine you know saying that something is 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 in a scarce resource and then actually showing them that there's a limited number left that generated the biggest change in behavior so subtly different they both they both seem to have an effect but when they're combined they're even more impactful
0: Mm-hmm. great thank you and then penultimate question when you drive change in brand behavior and then all your competitors copy you how do you still stay distinct
1: yeah this is a really good example because some one of these sass websites was obviously first to create these car, beautiful cartoon designs and they must be they must be pretty pissed off because everybody's copied <laughs> them same with compare the meerkat you know go compared to the exact same and created a opera singing man who complained about I don't know something and then same with EasyJet as well so EasyJet are famous for creating a very distinct brand with that distinct colour of orange and hilariously enough if you look if you ever fly in New Zealand or Australia you'll see that Jetstar the equivalent EasyJet brand in that region have copied almost the exact same colour and the exact same branding so it's it feels like there's this endless game of of people constantly copying what you do Mm -hmm. so it's difficult Um, I think the principle still applies right Mm -hmm. it's still worth trying to be distinct even when competitors are going to copy you eventually because it will have an effect in the time that competitors take on catching up it can allow you in the case of compare the market for example or EasyJet, to generate market share and to become leaders and to create advantages that way Mm -hmm. Um, but then I would also say that if it gets to the stage, like with SaaS products at the moment, where it really feels like there's a lot of similarity and not much distinctiveness. Mm-hmm. That is probably a good time to review the strategy and see if it's it's time to to change and to to try with something more distinct again. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I think it still showcases that it's it's a worthwhile endeavour to try and be distinct, but yeah. is a frustrating part of of, of being successful is that everybody will copy you as well.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess as well, it goes in cycles, doesn't it? The same way with, I guess, pretty much everything. It's not a one-off job. You'll do something and then have to review it anyway. So it's more of a work in progress than a, hey, I've done this, I'm distinct. That's that forevermore. It's always going to change, I guess, regardless.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Okay. Awesome. And the last question. Based on these um, psychology principles, what advice would you give to B2B product marketers?
1: I think rather than talking about specific studies and nudges that you can apply because we've gone into that quite a bit of detail the main bit of advice i'd give is just just try and educate yourself on the world of consumer psychology or at least i think that's a really valuable um Mm -hmm. thing to do because the majority of our decisions as i said at the start are made by our gut and i think because we make decisions just based on how we feel or our gut decisions we don't we don't actually generate a lot of efficiency and we we it means that a number of our product launches end up failing. But if we try and understand our consumers, if we learn the science behind how they operate, behind why they make decisions, we are just more likely to generate behavior that we want and to actually generate the results we want with our, with our marketing as well. Mm -hmm. Same is true for B2B, same is true for B2C. I work in a B2B organization and I've noticed that they work as well. Mm -hmm. So I would educate yourself. Definitely try and read a couple of those books that I mentioned earlier and this is a small plug, but if you have the time, check out the podcasts that I run as well. So mm-hmm. it's just twenty-minute podcasts. You can listen to them on your commute to work. Speak to a lot of the researchers, authors that I've mentioned on this podcast, and they explain mm-hmm. in their own words how these nudges affect people and how they've been used by marketers in the past. So doing little things like that is probably the best advice I could give you because that will allow you to to create product marketing that actually resonates.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Phil. I, for one, am like thoroughly consumed by this area. So I'll definitely be kind of doing some further reading to those resources. And hopefully for everyone else who's been listening, um, they feel the same.
1: All right. Thank you so much for having me, Bryony.
0: Oh, you're welcome. It's been an absolute pleasure. For everyone still tuned in, thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please help us spread the word to other product marketers. Before we leave you to get on with your day, if you want to get involved... Here are a few ways you can. If you're a product marketer and you want to come on the show and speak about your day, a specific topic, or your role in general, that's one option. If you want to flex your podcast hosting skills, being a guest host is another. And finally, if you or your company want to sponsor an episode, there's a third. Thanks again and have a great morning, afternoon, or evening, wherever you are.